we moved to the Jackson area back in 2009, and I got educated very quickly on something that I, had, I was completely ignorant of, I had never thought about, I had taken for granted my entire life, something called a structural foundation. If you, have a, if you own a home in the Jackson area, you already know what I'm talking about. That there's something about the clay here in central Mississippi, apparently, that, that makes for shifting foundations in homes, and it can literally ruin a house, or at least it can, can tank the resale value of a home. And so when we moved up to Madison County to start Harvest Church last year, uh, that was at the forefront of my mind when we started house shopping. It was, it was the number one thing on my list, that no matter what a house looked like on the internet, I wanted to get in there and I wanted to walk around, I wanted to know what was the differential. That was a word I never knew before, but now, see, I was all about it. The differential. What's the differential? Has there been a structural engineer's report done on this house? If not, why not? What are they trying to hide? See, that was, I, I, was, I was just convinced that we were going to pump a bunch of money into a house that was going to one day split open and fall apart because I just got paranoid about the foundation. And so here's the, the, the question for me was not just what does the house look like? What does it feel like? Does it have the right features for us? No, the question became what's at the bottom of it? Now, I, again, I would have never thought to ask those kind of questions. Never. Because the foundation is unseen. I mean, growing up as a kid, I never thought about it because you can't see it. You take it for granted, right? It's there and it's very important, but you take it for granted unless you're aware of the significance of it. And so no matter, you know, I, I, I kind of, you know, Jennifer was the one looking at features. I was the one thinking, okay, I, regardless of what the features are, it's got to have a good foundation because uh, no matter what neighborhood you live in, no matter how many features you've upgraded, if the foundation's bad, the house is bad, right? It's the conclusion we come to. Y'all, that's the image Jesus chooses right here to end the Sermon on the Mount. This is the image. I mean, when, when Jesus preached the greatest sermon ever spoken, he didn't close it with an altar call. He didn't close it in prayer. He didn't close it with a very warm, kind of comforting, hey, you know, I just want to love you if you just come to me kind of thing. He closed it with a very stern warning concerning foundations. He talks about life as a, as a house. Life is something that we build, but we build it on a certain kind of foundation, and ultimately the foundation is what decides the fate. Now, some of Jesus' parables, his illustrations, can be difficult to understand. Thankfully, this is not one of them. I'm here to tell you today, this is very simple and very straightforward. He ends the Sermon on the Mount with a very clear call, a decisive call to a certain way of life. Okay? Last week, if you were here last week, we looked at this kind of the beginning of his summary conclusion. It starts in, in verse 13 of chapter 7, where Jesus says there are two paths, two paths that a person can walk in life. Then he talks about the fact that there are two different kinds of trees, a good tree and a bad tree. He's giving us a very decisive perspective on life. You're, how you deal with Jesus is going to determine whether you go this way or that way, whether you build a house on this foundation or that. And so he doesn't complicate the issue for us. He says one's going to lead to life and one's going to lead to destruction, so make sure you choose wisely. Okay? Look again with me. We just read it, but let's read it again because it's short. What Jesus says as he closes this great sermon, he says, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and slammed against that house, and yet it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. Well, everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them 
may be compared to a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and slammed against that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. So Jesus pictures life. He's talking about your life, my life. He says it's like building a house. He's talking about how we choose to live. Uh, You build your life a certain way based on certain priorities and desires and things you're devoted to. We all do that. We, We build life a certain way based on what we're passionate about or what our goals are, what we're trying to achieve. Okay? Now, notice that what Jesus is talking about in terms of building life, most of, or at least half of, what he's talking about here looks very much the same for both of these guys. They are not two entirely diametrically opposed kind of people here. One obviously good, one obviously bad. In, in many ways, it looks the same. Think about this, that there's two men, they, right, they're both building houses. Everybody builds. Everybody's building a life for themselves, these two men. They both hear the words of Jesus, right? One is not, one's not uh, enlightened and the other ignorant. They both hear Jesus. They both encounter a terrible storm. And Jesus doesn't differentiate between storms as if one was worse than the other. Basically, they, they encounter the same storm. And so think about these two guys in this scenario. They both hear the words of Jesus. They both choose how they're going to live their life, how they're going to build their life. And then they both endure a terrible storm. Something horrible happens to their house. And in the end... The, the difference is revealed. Now, what's the difference? Well, backtrack with me. Start with the storm, right? Because through the storm, one house indeed stands, but the other falls. The other's destroyed. Because one house was built on a rock, whereas the other was built on sand. Because one person heard the words of Jesus and acted on them, whereas the other heard Jesus, but went about his own way and did not obey him. So you see the difference here. The similarities are clear, but so are the differences. They both heard Jesus, but one obeyed him, one followed him, one trusted him, and the other did not. And so in the end, Jesus is not differentiating between houses so much as he is foundations. He doesn't give us any indication of the structural stability of the house, how nice it looked, how good it was, how expensive it was. No. He says it all matters what it was built on. And in the end, that's what we have to deal with. We come to Jesus either as our foundation or we establish our life on something, anything else. Now, we're going to take a, a, a kind of a look, one look uh, that's, that's kind of a minor concern here, and then we're going to look at this illustration from the major concern. So one minor, one major. One a little more uh, philosophical, one, one more theological, okay? Um, but they're both important. When, when Jesus talks about building your house, building your life, this is something that's true regardless of whether a person is religious or not. I mentioned it already, that we all build our lives on something. I mean, this, is just, this is just generally true across the board for all people, that we build our lives on something. Every person in the world is driven in life by priorities, by desires, by something or some things that we're devoted to. Um, Something gives me a reason to live. Something gets me out of bed in the morning. Something defines my meaning for a life. That's true for all of us, all of us. And whatever that thing is or those things are, right, they they don't have to be necessarily bad things. It could be that I want to be a good husband, a good father, a good pastor, a good employee, that I want to be successful, that I want people to like me, whatever it may be, we're all driven by something that defines us. And what Jesus, I think, is indicating here is that that something, whatever it is, is going to serve as my foundation. 
It's going to be the very foundation of my life. This is the thing I live for. Everybody does this. The question is, does it work? If everybody builds their life on something, can we ultimately find something that is stable and that will last? Uh, in, in 2005, uh, there was a well-known author named David Foster Wallace. He's since passed away. He gave a commencement address at a college. Now, those things happen all the time. But in this case, what he said that day 13 years ago has become quite famous. Because what David Foster Wallace talked about was not how the, uh, you know, how the students who are graduating could one day fulfill their dreams and, and, and find their way in life. He actually pinpointed for them one of the deepest, most fundamental problems of human existence. And he didn't let his foot off the gas. What he talked about that day was the reality that we all build our lives, we all seek to find our identity in something, and that something ultimately for us is an act of worship. It's not just something I choose to do as a side project. He says, you will build your life on something, and that something is what you worship. Now, it's interesting that David Foster Wallace was not a Christian. He wasn't coming from a theological perspective. He was simply acknowledging the reality of life. And he was warning these students that whatever you build your life on, ultimately you will find it devastating to you. I'm going to quote what he says here. It's fascinating. He said that day, he said, everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. But the problem is that pretty much anything you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you'll never have enough. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you in the ground. Worship power, and you will feel weak and afraid, and you will need ever more power over others just to keep the fear at bay. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart. You will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. End quote. What, what's he saying right there? If the things you build your life on, if the things that give you your identity, if they are temporary, if they are of this world, if they are dependent on you and your circumstances, then you're building your house on shifting sand. You're building your life on sand. You have no real foundation. Because those things cannot satisfy. You're always trying to, what Ecclesiastes says, you're always trying to catch up to the wind. You're chasing the wind, but you can never actually take it in hand. That's what he's saying. And so ultimately, when we talk about building our life on anything that's temporary, Wallace makes the point that, of course, it's, it's, it's always fleeting. It's always outside of our grasp. What he didn't say, which is actually even worse, is that suffering destroys that kind of meaning too. It's not just that we can't ever catch up with it. What about when bad things happen? See, that's, that's the idea that Jesus presents to us, the storm that comes against the house. I want you to really think about this because it's a temptation for all of us. We all want to build our lives on something. But is your life built on something that suffering can't take away from you? Because see, that's what suffering does. Suffering, by, by definition, takes precious things away from us. It takes away our health. It takes away potentially our family and our loved ones. It can take away our money, our prestige, our popularity. Is there anything in your life that is precious to you that suffering could take away? Is there anything precious to you that suffering couldn't touch? 
And see, that's, that's the issue. What, what David Foster Wallace was doing, whether he realized it or not, he was simply echoing the Bible. That when we chase after the wind, when we try to build our lives on anything, anything other than God, we find that we're on unstable ground, shifting sand. We will be toppled, whether in this life or the next. It will happen because there is no foundation there. He says it will eat you alive. But to build your life on Jesus, see, by definition, we build our lives on something transcendent. Jesus is not subject to circumstances or to the opinion of other people or to whether or not I feel like I've fulfilled my own destiny and my dreams for life. No, Jesus exists beyond and above all those things. He transcends the temporary things of life. And so if we root ourselves in God, God who is eternal and stable and secure and unshakable, well, then you're building your house on a rock. You're building your life on an unshakable foundation. And the result is, listen, it's not just that you're, you, you've, you've kind of moved beyond the temporary things for your identity, but now you have a meaning in life that even suffering can't take away. There is no storm that can topple a person who has built their life on God because your identity is secure, your foundation's in Christ. Now, we appeal to that truth because it, it is true that that what we find is certainly if you know Jesus, you know this to be true, that you have now resources within you, that you have a, a relationship with a personal God that nothing can take away, that nothing can diminish, and that no other pursuit in life can fulfill. You've got it in Christ, right? But I call that a minor point because it is. It's important, it's true, but it's minor. Here's what Jesus, I think, is really aiming at in, in chapter 7. This is the major point. Um, that it's not just better for you in this life if you'll follow him. It's true. It is. But that's not it. Because the storm, you know, comes upon both people, remember? Life is hard for everybody. The promise of Christianity is not, if you'll follow Jesus, better things will happen to you than happen to other people. That's not the promise at all. So this is not just a promise that is rooted in this life only. Listen to what Jesus says. I'm going to repeat this same scripture again. We're going to hear it for the third time. But I want us to look at it now, understanding the storm from a different perspective. The storm cannot simply be periodically bad things happen to us. It's got to be more significant than that. Jesus is appealing to something more eternal than that. I want us to look at it one more time, but I want, to, I want you to think of the storm, the great trial, the great test, as being what I think Jesus had it in mind to be which is the judgment of God, the eternal judgment of God for sin, the ultimate storm. Now listen to what he says again. Everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against that house and yet it did not fall for it had been founded on the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a fool who built his house on sand. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and slammed against that house, and it fell. And great was its fall, terrible was its fall. We see in this, this little story, this little illustration, the storm is the ultimate test of the integrity of the house. The storm is not optional. The storm hits both men, both people. And the ultimate storm for you and me, what Jesus has made clear already in the Sermon on the Mount, is that we will stand before 
the judgment seat of God. We will come before God and we will answer for our lives. See, life is not made up of simply what we experience on this side of heaven. It's not just the good and the bad that happens to us in the here and now. Life is eternal, and therefore we will stand before God one day. We will show ourselves to him, and we will answer for how we've lived. Now, that's a scary thought, isn't it? It's meant to be a scary thought. It's meant to jar us and sober us. But I want you to think about it. If if that's a disconcerting thought to you, I don't like to think of God that way. I don't like to think of God judging me or judging anybody. Um, if, if God is not a righteous judge, then there is no hope for the world at all. You think about all the evil and darkness that takes place in this world. As we speak right now, there is untold evil taking place in this world. If there is no righteous judge, then that evil gets a pass. And if there's a God at all, he's not worth worshiping. He's got to be righteous. He has to be if there's any hope for the world. And because God is righteous, he can't tolerate sin. God cannot turn a blind eye to sin or sweep sin under the rug. He's righteous. He can't tolerate it. And we wouldn't want him to. And because God is just, because God has justice on his side, the eternally just judge, we can be sure that he's not just righteous far off, feeling bad about the mess we've made of the world, but that he will bring evil to right. That God will punish evil appropriately, all the darkness that exists in this world. So God is righteous, he can't tolerate sin, and he is just, he will deal with sin. Now, we wouldn't want God to be any other way. The problem, the disconcerting thought is this, there's evil in my heart, and I know it. There's a long record of sin in my life, and I know it, and any honest person would say the same about themselves. And so the uncomfortable question, the difficult question, when we look at what Jesus is talking about, the storm that comes across both houses, if God should test the integrity of my life against the standard of his perfect righteousness, would I stand in that day? Would I pass through that judgment? Y'all, the answer is no. The obvious answer is no. And it's not even close. This, this false notion that, man, if I can just do enough good to outweigh my bad, then God will accept me. A perfectly righteous God does not work on that scale. A perfectly righteous God, Hebrews chapter 2 says, every sin and every act of disobedience receives a just penalty because God is righteous. God is just. And so the question is, on that day, if I stand before him on my own account based on my own life, will I be able to pass judgment? No, no one will. No one has the righteousness within them to pass muster on that day. No matter how nice the house appears, no matter how diligently we've worked, no matter how much we've tried to build up a good life, a meaningful life, when facing so great a storm, Jesus says we will be toppled completely, utterly destroyed. No one can stand up to God's righteousness. But there is a house that stands. You know, as the illustration goes, there is a house that stands. Not every house somehow is toppled over. Even in the midst of this storm, even in the midst of God's judgment, the house stands. And Jesus tells us why, how? Because the foundation is such that the house cannot be knocked over. Because the foundation, listen, coming to Jesus on my own righteousness gets me nowhere. But if I come to him on someone else's righteousness, on someone else's foundation then the house stands. And that's the the gospel message. 
that on Christ, the solid rock, I stand, all other ground is seeking sand. We sing that song, right? If someone else serves as my foundation, someone who can pass muster, someone who can stand against the perfect righteousness of God, then whatever I, however my house looks externally is irrelevant. Right? Whether you think anything of me or not is irrelevant. If I'm founded on the rock, then I pass through God's judgment into glory. Right? It's the foundation, remember? Whatever, whatever you think your house looks like, whatever the record of sin in your life looks like, you may think that comparatively you're, you're a broken down shack of a person because you've got nothing to show for your life. But if that shack rests on a solid rock, then God will bless you and show you eternal grace and favor and will bring you into his presence forever because the foundation was there, regardless of what anybody else thought about you. God esteems you as his child. Do you see why Jesus would call one person a fool and one person wise? Whenever I see wisdom and folly in the Bible, my first thought is one guy is stupid and one guy is smart. That's, that's the problem. That's not the problem. The fool in this scenario, he's not a fool because he's dumb. He's a fool because he hears the words of Jesus. And yet he does not apply them to his life. He hears the words of Jesus, but he chooses his own path instead. And therefore he's a fool. The wise man is not wise because he's smart. He's wise because he abandons himself. In the face of Jesus Christ, this man sees that he has nothing at all to build his life on. And so he puts it all on Christ instead. That's what makes him wise. He trusts Jesus for his righteousness and he faithfully obeys him with his life. He builds his life on Christ. Now, I don't know how you're doing with this. When I read the end of Matthew chapter 7 here, like I said, it's very simple. It makes perfect sense. There's nothing really confusing at all about it. But I'm, I, I, I wonder sometimes where upon which I'm building my life. I mean, I know, obviously, I'm a pastor of a church. I'm building my life on the rock. Of course, I've got faith in Jesus Christ, right? But day by day by day, we're all building. What kind of foundation are we building on? What is it that I build my entire life on? I put all my trust in. Um, last week, we talked about how Jesus began the Sermon on the Mount. He's, he's, he's bookending here. We're looking at, at point Z, um, but point A, Matthew 5, 3, Jesus gave us the groundwork for all of this. We talked about it a little bit last week when he said, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That everything we're talking about ultimately depends on starting at point A, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. When Jesus said that, he's saying right up front, up front, you have to come to God empty of yourself. Right up front, you have to come to God confessing your sin and your need, that you are destitute, that you're impoverished, that you have nothing to offer God, that God should accept in his righteousness. All that I have to bring to the table is my sin. And therefore, I'm spiritually poor. I'm desperate for grace. And mine, therefore, yours, therefore, is the kingdom of heaven. We receive it rather than trying to earn it. Because the Son of God came to give us life. He came to make poor people rich, riches untold. But we have to put all of it on him. Right? Devote the entirety of your being to knowing and following me because you've built your life on me, because you've trusted me. Right? Um, so I don't, you know, I, 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 when I examine my own life, and you probably yours, we shouldn't pretend like this is preschool stuff, y'all. 
It's simple. But, I mean, this is the essence of life. This is the essence of all of life that Jesus is summarizing here for us. I don't like to admit that I'm spiritually poor. I don't like to admit that I'm needy. Deep down, I want to believe that I can do it, that I can produce the kind of life that God accepts. I don't like to think of myself as depending on another foundation that is not of my own. But y'all, that, that, that way of thinking leads me down the other path, right? Even if I appear very religious, even if I come to church every Sunday, if I try to build my life on my own terms, then I'm not coming to Jesus Christ, and he counts me a fool. So I don't know how you respond to this today. It's probably, you've probably heard it before, but the response ultimately is what makes all the difference. I'll tell you how the people responded. Y'all, when I read, when I read the Sermon on the Mount for the first time, I was 16 years old, first time I'd ever really read the Bible at all for myself. I remember reading it alone in my bedroom, and I was, I was fairly blown away, as much as a little 16-year-old could have been, and that, you know, not a whole lot impressed me. I was really trying to be really cool when I was 16. But there alone, with the Bible in my hands, I finished up Matthew chapter 7, and I remember, like, beads of sweat. Like, whoa. This was something new to me. This was something foreign and something wonderful. And maybe I got just in a very small sense, I got, I got a sense of what the people felt the very first time that sermon was proclaimed. Matthew's, Matthew's nice enough to tell us the response. You notice that the, the sermon ends, and in verse 28, when Jesus had finished these words, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as their scribes. Is that, an, you know, is that it's kind of makes for a nice tidy ending to the, to the chapter. Matthew's actually making a really important point right here. The scribes, the, the religious teachers of the day, they taught with some measure of authority, but it wasn't their own authority. They taught on the authority of the law and the prophets. If they were a good scribe, of course, they simply taught the word of God that had already been revealed. They were like mockingbirds. They were echoes of the revealed truth of God. And there's nothing wrong with that. And that's what I do every Sunday. There's nothing really new, ultimately, that needs to be said. We simply rely on what has been done and what has been said. But when Jesus shows up, Jesus doesn't show up as an echo. And this is what amazed the crowds. Jesus comes standing upon some new form of authority that they had not witnessed before. There's something about him and the way he teaches that they did not grasp, that they had never seen, not as their scribes, but as something entirely different. And you know what? Jesus didn't just teach with that authority, but those who followed him recognized that his whole life was a life of authority. That the same Jesus who preached these words in the Sermon on the Mount healed the sick, and he walked on water, he even raised the dead. His whole life was a life of divine authority, saying and doing things that only God can do. And so listen, when Jesus commands us to hear him and to act on what we hear, to trust him and build our lives on him, he has the authority to say it. How do we respond when we see Jesus' words? The, the natural response may be for us to say, I'll incorporate this into my life the best I can. Especially the stuff I like. The stuff I don't like, you know, we'll see. I don't know, we'll see. But you know, I'll do my best. No. He's not a therapist come to give us good advice. He's not even a great teacher 
come to give us good teaching and, and, and sharpen our intellect. He comes with authority so that the response is decisive. It's, it's clear. He says there's no middle ground. It's either one or the other. You either hear me and come to me and build your life on me, or you don't. And so for Jesus to, uh, to, to come and preach this message, the crowds instantly recognize something different. He's not appealing to some other authority. He's appealing to himself. You've heard it said, but I say to you, and he gave them a sense of what the divine authority of God looked like in human form. And so when I ask you, how are you doing? How are you responding to Jesus' words here? I want to encourage you to think of it more decisively than simply, I hope to do better. I hope to incorporate this the best I can. That's not the issue at hand here. The issue is that the divine son of God has come to earth and has spoken clarifying truth concerning not just the sinfulness of man and our need, but the sufficiency of himself to meet that need. Jesus has come. And what we do for him is ultimately not, it's better if I'll follow him. What happens now for us is the decisive line between life and death itself. That's how Jesus posits this. He doesn't conclude by saying, I really hope you'll do what I say. I think you'll be happier if you do. That's what I'd say. Now, Jesus says, if you don't do this, you will topple into total destruction and great will be your fall. Now, that takes authority. That takes authority. And, of course, Jesus has that authority, right? Jesus proved himself to have that authority. He didn't just show up and speak and walk away. He lived a life of divine authority. And so the question becomes, if I will hear him and I will build my life on him, I'm not simply making a choice that's better for me in the long run. I'm obeying God who created me and who therefore owns me. He's the dividing line between life and death. Kyle, hear me, trust me, build your life on me because I made you and you owe me everything. Jesus has the authority to say it that bluntly and that effectively is what he's saying. You're a fool if you don't because I'm God. But you know, can I, 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 religion in essence is based on this. God's up there, we're down here, obey him, do what he says, because he's God and you're not. Okay? Now, that's legitimate. If he's God, if he created you, you owe him everything, right? But I want you to know as we close that that was not the appeal of Christ. When Jesus comes to earth, he has every right, he has every authority to say, build your life on me, you're a fool if you don't, you'll be destroyed. True. But I want you to listen to how Jesus referenced his own authority. This is from a different gospel, this is John chapter 10. Jesus spoke about his own authority as God, and, and these words uh, uh, I pray will encourage you today. Listen to what he says. No one takes my life away from me, Jesus says. But I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay my life down, and I have authority to raise it up again. Let me say it again. Nobody takes my life away from me. This is Jesus preparing to go to the cross. Nobody takes it from me. But I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay my own life down and then to raise it up again. Listen, y'all, if Jesus was content with merely external obedience. Build your life on me, follow me, go to church, do the right things. 
and you'll be okay. If that was all Jesus cared about, then he would have preached the Sermon on the Mount potentially and simply walked away. We would have had enough. But if Jesus, listen, if Jesus wants your heart, if Jesus wants, if his concern is to make you a child of God, if Jesus wants to make you a new creation, if Jesus wants to grant forgiveness for your sins and to make you truly righteous, then he can't merely speak to you good words and walk away. We talked about this. There's no righteousness in me. There's no ability in you or in me to take the words of Jesus and dead level best we'll try to do it and figure out if we can make it there in the end. That's not how the gospel works. If Jesus wants more for us, if he wants your heart, if he wants to make you a child of God, then what he's saying is very clear. He's got to give himself up for you. It's the only way to bring us to the throne of God in righteousness. He's got to grant you his forgiveness And to do that, he's got to lay himself down to be nailed to a cross. Y'all, the gospel story tells us that God in all his glory exercised his divine authority by humiliating himself, by sending his son to be one of us, and not just one of us, but to become a servant of all, a bondservant, that he walked this earth many days homeless, that he lived a life that we could never live, a righteous life. But even though he was perfect in all his deeds, he was punished as the chief of sinners. He was nailed to the cross. And then God rose him again, raised him again on the third day. Y'all, when, when God wanted to exercise authority, Jesus says, I have the authority, what? To tell you what to do? Yeah, he does. He says, I have authority to lay down my life and then to take it up again. When we talk about building our lives on Jesus, is it better for you in the short term? Yes, it is. Is it better for you in the long term? Of course it is. But ultimately, we don't come to Jesus just because it's better for us. We come to Jesus because the God of all the universe would so love us that he was willing to become killable for us. That when, that when we celebrate this Advent season and we think about the coming of Jesus, this cuddly little baby born into a manger, that we recognize he came to earth to die so that he might give us life in his name. Why should you build your life on Jesus Christ? Because he has given his life for you. And so let's do more than just hear his words today. Anybody can do that. I pray that we'll hear him, but that today we'll trust him, that today we'll build everything on him, because he is our solid rock. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for good news this morning, that what you require of us today is not a long list of good things. Good intentions, good deeds. Lord, we don't bring any of that with us this morning. Thank you this morning that what you require of us is not a, a, um, is not a great and mighty faith. But Lord, what you require of us today is that we simply put all of our life onto the solid rock of Jesus Christ. 
And my, my prayer today for us is that we might be encouraged. Perhaps, perhaps our list of, of good deeds and bad deeds is not in our favor. Perhaps our faith is not nearly as strong as we wish it was. But what we celebrate today has nothing to do with us. We celebrate that we stand upon a foundation of righteousness that cannot be moved. And so, Lord, what, whatever it is today that we, that we should, should take from a message like this, I pray that it's that, that we put all of our weight, that we build everything, that we put all of our passion, all of our devotion, all of our desire, that it would be fixated on Jesus Christ, that no temporary thing can charm us today. Because we have built our lives on the rock, the eternal Son of God, who loved us and gave himself up for us. Father, where, where, we, are, where we are trying to maybe live with, with one foot in and one out, bring, bring our hearts to repentance this morning. If we want to have Jesus on our own terms, if we want to incorporate Jesus into our life the best we can, then, uh, Lord, correct that, that sinful way of thinking that he didn't come to share space, that he wants our whole heart, and you deserve it. And so, Lord, where we, where we are sinful, where we are poor, where we are incapable today, Lord, give us a, a long and lasting look at a Savior who is rich in mercy, who is strong in our weakness, who is righteous to cover all our sin. And may we be uh, highly motivated today to put it all on him. Change us, Father, not by improving our behavior, but by turning our hearts entirely to you. Let everything else, Lord, fall where it may. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.